Hello and welcome to the Peace and Love Amplifiers podcast. I'm so happy you're here. In these episodes, we will dive deep into the idea of peace. What is it? Is it even attainable? Everyone wants it. So how can we make it manifest? Along with my own experiences, you will also hear uplifting stories from inspirational people who are building peace in their own lives and the world around them. We are on the threshold of a new society, looking at where science meets spirituality. And these stories are a call to action to help overcome division and build a better society for all concerned. Join me on this thought-provoking journey to explore ways we can all amplify peace and love. Thanks for coming back to another episode of the Peace and Love Amplifiers podcast. Today, my guest is my friend, Dan Kahn. He is on the Leadership Council of the Peace Alliance, and he is the National Field Coordinator. He teaches empathy skills to teenagers at the Community Connections Program in Tallahassee, Florida, as a case manager, promotes the growth of restorative justice practices statewide as executive director of the Florida Restorative Justice Association, and nationally as a project coordinator for RJNet, and coaches peace-building advocates globally as the national field coordinator of the Peace Alliance. He is also an active consultant, including frequent production of empathy-oriented political videos. So, Dan, thank you for coming. I'm so excited to have you here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We've been to, I'm sure you have been more than me, but to D.C. to lobby and, you know, we've been to different congressional offices and buildings and you're there in sunny Florida and I'm here in cold New Jersey and I'm jealous as anything to see you out in the bright sunshine. But tell everybody how you're doing. Um, thanks. Yeah, I'm doing well. I, I feel I feel quite good. I'm, I'm visiting actually a, a town that I lived in for about 10 years, which is Gainesville, Florida. I live in Tallahassee now. In between Gainesville and Tallahassee, I lived in Washington, D.C. and was working more than full-time for the Peace Alliance. That was when you and I met. So yeah, I, I mainly came back to Gainesville to get my car looked at in detail. Uh, the, the Volvo gurus are here. I made a pilgrimage to the, the sacred home of, of the doctors of Volvo cars and uh, got a major once-over and looking for some repairs on my 30-plus-year-old car. Wow. Wow. You go. 30 years Thank old. You. That's That's amazing. If I'm counting right, yeah, it's 1989, so that makes it what 32 years old. Wow, that's when I graduated high school. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that dates me. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, as the national field coordinator for the Peace Alliance, and well, why don't you describe what the Peace Alliance is? I had Ann Creeder on here a while ago, and she talked a lot about the UN role and she, you know, she had so much information and you, you know, if you could talk also about the Peace Alliance and what it is and, and how, what it works for. Sure, sure. So the Peace Alliance was formed in 2004 and it is an organization. There are somewhere upwards of 40,000 people in the network worldwide, sort of on the Peace Alliance 
email lists, et cetera. And it is an advocacy organization. It works to advocate, empower, and inspire people around practical peace-building solutions and policies that would advance those solutions. So there's, there's the legislative policy angle, and there's also the whole spectrum of peace-building, including internal peace and peace-building in schools and neighborhoods and humanizing our justice system. So it, it looks to the, yeah, the whole sort of landscape that way. Yeah. I, in describing the Peace Alliance, I, I got to say we were founded with a single policy goal, which was pat, with creation of a United States cabinet level Department of Peace, a department that would research and advocate and promote the best available practices for conflict resolution and cooperation. And uh, that continues to be a high priority. The, the Peace Alliance has branched out some. There are, there are other shorter term goals that have been pursued funding for things that we like, smaller pieces of legislation, but there still is this, there's a bill, um, it's probably about to be any, introduced any day into the U.S. Congress because we have a new congressional session, and so bills need to be reintroduced. But in the last session, I think the bill to create a, a Department of Peace Building had something like 35 or 38 co-sponsors in Congress. So that's the nutshell. Yeah. I remember I went down for the one conference. I I guess it was 2004 and five when there was a big convention down in DC. Marianne Williamson was the head of the Peace Alliance and she had the conference beforehand before we went to lobby was just, it was so dynamic there. I still can remember every day of that convention between, you know, with the star packed people that were guest speakers and, and then going out to lobby Congress, you know, just walking the halls of Congress was just so momentous. You know, that first time was like, wow, this is amazing. And to talk about, you know, to when I came home and talked about like when we sat and watched them drop the bill, that was Dennis Kucinich when he was he was doing it. It was like, this is America right here. You know, this is, this is what we, what we do. And, you know, everybody that I, when I came home, we were like, wow, you know, we really need that department of peace building. And well, then it was a department of peace and, but not a lot of people knew about it. And it was like, you know, so the work of the department of peace or the peace Alliance and, and has been growing for the past so many years, you know, since then we need it now more than ever. If we, and what we said, you know, if we had that Department of Peace building, would we have gotten to the place that we're at right now? But that's that's always the question, right? So, yeah, <laughs> looking looking for the looking for the leverage, trying to say what 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 tools, what steps are going to be the most effective and efficient ways to spend our time to to get us towards more of the world that we want. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think something special about the Peace Alliance, and, and you, you mentioned Marianne Williamson and, and, and Dennis Kucinich, both people who you know could could be somewhat aptly described as dreamers, big dreamers, you know, and also folks, particularly Marianne, who pay a lot of attention to the the inner struggle, the inner journey, the wrestling with darkness, and and you know, aspiring for some something great. And uh, I think that really characterizes a lot of the Peace Alliance work is is really honoring internal processes and interpersonal processes as we are working towards the future that we want, you know, walking our talk, I guess, in a nutshell, or, and, or at least attempting to, yeah. recognizing 
we're all taking our best shot, but we're trying to learn along the way. And I, I don't pretend that, you know, the, the healing is going to take place entirely far away somewhere outside of me. Like Congress is going to pass a bill and I'm going to fight like mad to get it passed, <laughs> and, you know, but it matters how we fight or how we build, you know, and how we show up and what conversations we have along the way with legislative aides, with, with Congress people, with allies, with apparent, you know, adversaries. That's where we get to do the work of building mm-hmm. peace along the path of advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I always, with this podcast, is is to be authentic. You know, that peace is sometimes challenging and, and being, coming to a, a situation with your highest intent takes practice, you know, and, you know, we all have our triggers and we all have the things that take our breath away that kind of, you know, and so it's not the easy, it's not the easy path, but it's the, the best and highest path. Yeah. 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 Hearing your words, I'm thinking how much that resonates for me in terms of the teenagers that I work with. Mm. You mentioned one one of my jobs is with teens and when they do something that triggers me, you know, that that's bothersome to me, there's all kinds of traditions and habits of ways I could respond, you know, and some of those are in my brain, you know, with suspicion and judgment and fear and concern. And those things come up. But my colleagues and I, we support each other in trying to come up with empathy first, to start by hearing somebody, you know, even if I have some story that this teenager has been lying to me and manipulating me or whatever I might be thinking, if if I can't hear them first, that means I probably need to get heard, not by them <laughs> first. <laughs> you know, usually they're not going to be in a space, you know, as teens in the situation that they're in to hear my trouble, my troubled conflicts before they get heard. You know, that's that's just the the balance of of space. So my colleagues and I make space for each other, and we try to you know have empathy buddies where we can. But as you said, it's hard. Somebody pushes our buttons in a political situation, in a public situation, or in a family situation, we are usually not raised to have our first response be to check in with ourselves. What am I feeling? What needs are not being met? What's, how is my next step going to be connecting and effective? You know, do I need to step away? We get some of these tools, but I know I, I would like more tools than what I was raised with, which is part of why I do this work. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, you touched on so much just right there, bringing in like that self-awareness when somebody pushes your buttons is to like, okay, instead of coming back right away, you know, and, (laughs) and attacking is okay. Let me, let me just step back. And, you know, that does take practice, you know, because right now we have, we live in such a social media culture that that face-to-face kind of contact and especially now with the quarantining and, and the pandemic, we don't see each other face to face a lot anymore, at least, you know, a lot of, you know, majority of people. But, you know, so what do you teach your teenagers? And because I know I have a 12 year old and uh-huh. it's definitely challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a number number of pieces that, that we teach. And yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to touch on a lot of the things that you mentioned about the social media stuff, because being more separated, a lot of us you know, have heard and known and acknowledged that being separated by social media, it's somewhat easier to, to be tempted to take track 
shots at, at people, pot shots at people, you know, say something off the cuff because you're not seeing them. You know? mm-hmm. So there's that also, this sort of divisions can build maybe even more so when we're not face to face. There's that temptation. So some of the things that we, that we teach, that we share with the teens, one is the acronym WAIT, okay? W-A-I-T. Like if you're stirred up, if you're steamed up, it may be valuable to, to pause. And, and it's an acronym for two different things. One is, what am I thinking? Just check in with myself. What's going on right now? Okay. You know, check in with myself. And the next is, why am I talking? And, and deeply into that why. Like, what is my purpose with the next thing I'm going to say? You know? okay. So is this, is this going to create connection? Is this going to create understanding? Am I fighting back? Am I... And that, and that can be a clue to the, the needs that are going on. You know, when I say, why am I about to say this? And that's another, you know, connected, but also separate piece is identifying needs or values. There's a, there's a great resource online. I think um, John Kenyon created a, a pretty solid list. If you look at up uh, feelings and needs and the name John Kenyon, K-I-N-Y-O-N, you'll get this, you know, two pages or, you know, one page double-sided with feelings on one side and needs or values on the other. So, yeah, if you can identify your needs in a strenuous moment, or even just try to identify some needs, it shifts your, your own thinking and shifts your own feeling. It can intervene in like trauma-born patterns of reaction if you just take a moment of awareness to your own needs and or to the needs, the possible needs of somebody else. And I use needs and values interchangeably. Like, what's important to me here? Okay. Is, it a, a, is it a value of respect? Is it a value of kindness? Is it a value of consideration? Is it wellness? You know, there's, there's this whole list of values that pretty much the whole human species can relate to at one time or another. We all want, generally, at some point, we all probably want acceptance and kindness and food and nutrition, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So those are, those are a couple of strategies that we use. One is weight, just checking in. Why am I talking or what am I thinking? And another one is like, can I identify what, what need I'm I'm aiming towards? What, what's most important to me here or what's most important to the other person. If, If you have the space to think about what the value is that the other person's is underlying the other, other person's behavior, then there's a lot of potential for a shift. Somebody comes at me, you know, comes at me is my experience of them like saying something that is antagonistic in my, in my view or my, my feelings. If in that moment I can imagine what drives them, mm-hmm. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that they are, there's some value underlying their behavior that I could relate to in the abstract. You know, maybe they want safety. Maybe they want emotional safety. Maybe they want prosperity or you know, something. I, but, but even just guessing, even if I don't know, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I think giving others and yourself the benefit of the doubt is like 90% of peace building. Yeah, exactly. They're doing the best with what they have at the time and that we all are. And yeah. I think a lot of that is the underlying thing that we need to do is self-care, self-love, all those, what you talked about before is that inner, (laughs) the inner peace building first, you know, and because if, you know, I just had a a recent 
event in my life where I was completely drained and emotionally depleted and physically depleted. And I had an incident where I got into a huge argument with a family member. And as peace builders, we need to take care of ourselves first and foremost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think I've gained more and more awareness and proactiveness about that in the, in the last 10 years. Mm. Um, so, so keep hope alive, youngsters. It's <laughs> 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 um, not, not too late to learn. Yeah, that, that if I am tired or not uh, dehydrated, you know, <laughs> maybe I simply need a nap or simply need not to engage or, you know, some breathing exercise or stretching or get outside. You know, there's basic things where animals, we, we need these things. We yeah. need movement. And, and yeah. And one of the, the core tenets of this podcast is that self-love begets inner peace. Inner peace begets world peace. Therefore, self-love begets world peace. So in order for us to really see a, a change, a the majority of us that can have true self-love, we won't be as triggered by somebody else's different viewpoint. That makes a lot of sense. I watch. I'm going to take issue with the with the foundational tenet of your of your whole podcast. <laughs> well, come on now, Dan. Let's go. Let's let's, let's fight. Come on. <laughs> let's duke it out. For me, my mo anyway, and I, I think this may be true for a lot of folks. It has been, and I think it's going to be sort of a alternating back and forth like yes it's important to build self-love and, and peace within to be effective externally and it's also important can be important to build externally to promote the structures that we need and create the environments that are going to serve us even while we may not be in some perfect state of self-love. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I bow down to you. Yes. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> we, yeah, we need, especially in a, in a society that isn't perfect, right? We need yeah. to help all of the societal structures be able to help people on an individual level. And that, and that's what's mm. the, the beautiful thing about the Peace Alliance is it is you've, you know, with all the research that, you know, the cost analysis of the incarceration and what it does to uh, society. And I don't have any of the numbers off the top of my head because I was just researching it and I didn't print it up. But do you have any of that information from the cost benefit analysis of peace building? I mean, yeah. On that topic in particular, just a little background, folks may have heard that while the, the U.S. is is about 5% of the world's population, we incarcerate over 25% of the world's inmates. So there's a, more incarceration happening per capita uh, by, by factor of five um, in this country than, than in the rest of the world. Incarceration costs average around $80,000 per person per year. In some places, it may be as little as 40000 In other places, it's as much as 150000 So that's a big price tag. And recidivism rates or repeat offense rates typically hover somewhere between 45 and 65% for general population. People are, are serve their time, serve their sentence, get out. It's better than, than average chance they're going to be back in within a certain amount of time, however it's measured. 
three years or five years. And in places where restorative justice practices have been implemented, and restorative justice practices is one of my favorite peace building tools to talk about and to advocate for and to practice, because I just find it so practical and functional given the already existing structures of our society, sort of like plug and play. You can Mm. convert our systems to restorative justice practices fairly seamlessly. So where you have restorative justice practices in place, those recidivism rates drop dramatically. So from like 50 or 60% recidivism down to like 15 or 12 or 8%. So when you think about reducing by 40%, the recidivism rate. And for each of those inmates, when you've been spending $80,000 a year, that's a big price tag. So, you know, legislators, policymakers, they care about health, they care about well-being. And part of that is watching the budget. Part of that is thinking about economics and what's effective. And and when you've got people who are, instead of being incarcerated, are saving the the taxpayer a ton of money. And instead of, of that, they're back in the community with their families, paying taxes, working their jobs, and not reoffending. Yeah, it's you a hear the zealot. The yeah. zealot in me is coming out. No, no, no. I love. <laughs> I mean, I was just watching a whole show on restorative justice, and I think there is, like you said, there's a plug and play that you maybe describe what exactly restorative justice is, so that you know people that don't know maybe can can do some research and advocate for their state representatives. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or, or wherever, the school board, their, you know, yeah. their, their mayor, their county commission. Yeah. So restorative justice practices are typically their, their ways of addressing a situation of harm or conflict. And it, it involves some sort of a circle process and sometimes involves bringing together people who were harmed directly in an incident by other people who may have caused the harm, other people who were more indirectly affected by the situation. and there's typically a chance for folks to hear each other and really come to grips, come to terms with some of the impact of the event and also brainstorm soul search together for actions or elements that would heal some of the harm that's been experienced and possibly prevent this type of harm from happening again. So it's a little community conference to address harm and build healing and prevent future harm. It's not always about harm. So I, I couch that, you know, qualify that. There are restorative practices which are more proactive. It's sort of counterintuitive because restorative sounds like you're addressing something that's gone wrong. But there's also kind of a restoring societal fabric. If there are ways of, of helping us to build a culture, whether it's in a school or in a community where everyone knows their voice matters and everyone knows that other people's well-being matters. And you can get to that place by regular check-ins, by people being heard on a regular basis, by all kinds of activities that can happen in a classroom or in a community group or in a neighborhood that kind of lay the groundwork for less harm, less conflict, less violence. And where these things get plugged in are typically in school discipline systems or correctional systems, judicial systems, but they're also available in, you know, corporate structures and organizational structures. There are restorative type of of organizing models. And just another qualifier about plug and play, it typically takes a substantial amount of training and information and process for a 
for a school to adapt new processes, for a school district to adapt new processes, for a, for a system to do so. So it's all relative. It's not like you just, you know, yeah, open just, the box of instructions and then yeah. you've got your new system. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It's, it's not a, a Lego kit. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, again, it's all even the, I'm sure the facilitators of this have to do some of their own self-work to mm-hmm. be able to kind of move through this process and absolutely and help people guide them as far as i know yeah i don't i don't know anybody who's all finished and just just show up and shine who's all finished i don't know anyone either i'm all done i just i just shine the bright light of healing and i never have any internal conflicts no (laughs) hey i swear if you're like if you're in this in this world, you know, unless you're sitting on a mountaintop somewhere and and have all your meals handed to you, there's work to do. But yeah. I think there are moments, you know, I don't want to say there are not moments, whatever it looks like, you know, biting into that peach or that brownie <laughs> or, or swimming or in the bathtub or waking up from the nap before you remember your to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have our moments of bliss, I think. Hopefully we all do. If yeah. Some folks don't, then I hope they do again if that's what they want. Yeah. Peace building work is is so dynamic. You know, there's so much that there's layers upon layers upon layers, you know, whether it's the personal piece, the societal piece, you know, whether it's your town, your school district, whether it's your family, you know, the those dynamics and and they all build on top of each other. You know, the they kind of work like you said before, being listened to and being heard, you know, and again, like some people don't even listen to themselves. You know, I've been a massage therapist for 20 years, 20 plus years now. And some people, you know, I would do a lot of corporate events where I would bring my massage chair in and set it up. And I would massage people for like 15 minutes, right in the middle of their their work day. A lot of people like, wow, I didn't realize I was that tight right there. It's like, yeah, you know, you got to check in with yourself, you know, feel what what's going on. And not that I have the loosest shoulders, but I know that I'm tight, you know? So it's, it's like people have, I really think that it's a, a self-defense mechanism that people are disconnected from themselves so that they can get through the day because they put so much pressure on themselves that they have to take care of so many things. and you know, and to kind of disengage and, and manage expectations is a huge thing that people can help them just take a breath, you know, and not put so much on their plate because, you know, you, you do that and then you, you don't get your to-do list done. And then, you know, <laughs> I'm a big, I'm a big believer in to-do lists, but then a friend of mine and I have like an accountability partner her and I for the past year, we check in in every Monday and then check in every Friday. And this is what I want to get done here. And this, you know, and as I'm going through this, I'm like, I am putting so much pressure on myself every week. Like, and I told her the one week I'm like, I'm not, I'm going to cut my list in half, you know, because it's like, this is, it's not sustainable. So, you know, it's all that check-in you know, with your kids, with your spouse, with your partner, with your, you know, family members, seeing who's being heard, who's not being heard. And I think all that starts, you know, at home. And yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, I think she's had a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think our society is ripe for this. We're ready for it, you know, and what we haven't had it. So now we can we see what we need. This this is an interesting time. I think I I, I agree with with that. And some of it, it obviously everything plays into or can it connects with this COVID thing on some level, and also just the, the heightened political atmosphere of the last year. Like if you take those two things together and think about the effect on us of being isolated, of having to adjust our lifestyles, you know, for some folks, it's a major loss of income and, you know, still having, but things shifting so much, you know, expectations shifting. What does it look like to go to school? What does it look like to go to work? Yeah. I, part of me thinks that there's sort of an opening in the field Mm. of what we think we need to do, what we think life should look like and who, who made these decisions and how are they landing on me? Decisions mm. that I have made when I said, look, I said, I have to get this, this and this done by Friday. And at the time, maybe it was an aspiration, you know, maybe it was a goal or an intention. When it becomes too burdensome or too painful, how quick am I to say, well, I don't really need to get those two things done by Friday. You know, I'm willing to take those off the list until next Wednesday or whatever it is. But I'm finding this, you know, I, I don't know if it's obvious. I'm speaking from experience. I'm not just telling, telling people what to do. That's been one of my major goals on, in, in recent weeks is to make that transition faster, to assess what I really need to do and, you know, and what I have space for and, and to transition to, a, you know, a different agenda with a minimum of self-torture. <laughs> yes, because we can. I, I know I can torture myself, you know. And yeah. it's and, subtle. It just starts up out of nowhere. And yeah. All of a sudden, it's there. Yeah. yeah. But I, I just want to, like, okay, what, you know, what's my real deadline? Or can I could probably even adjust that? And honestly, there's, there's so much we don't know about what's needed in the world. Part of me thinks I know what's going to happen if I don't get X, Y, and Z done by Friday. But really, I do not. And so part of it's like, having the courage to ask the person that was waiting for the thing that I was supposed to do, Hey, is it okay if we reschedule to Monday? Yeah. And they say, sure. And even, you know, even if I have to do that three times, you know what? <laughs> it wasn't happening. How is this for you? <laughs> no, you yeah. know what? I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or they could say, that's fine. could be important to me to get it by Wednesday. Can, can we do that? It's like, all right, let's, you know, but also as stress levels rise, using our words can be harder. You mm -hmm. know, our, this is, you know, get into neuroscience. A lot of us have heard over and over again, this, this got this really complex advanced cerebral cortex, our, our prefrontal cortex. But if we feel danger, threatened, desperate, then a lot of those functions go offline. They get dull. You know, oh, I, yeah. I don't know how to ask a question because I'm afraid it's going to mean my death. <laughs> yeah, because we, we get into that fight or flight. Yeah. 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 So I mean, there's massaging our brains. Exactly. And, and a lot of that is, uh, sorry. Yeah. A little puppy got caught up in its leash. It's someone to say hello. And I can't resist putting my hand out to, to, to greet it. Hi, how's it going? Okay. Oh, to be in a park again. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was a cry of pain unless that dog has an old injury just to reassure people. Um, it just, the leash was just wrapped around its paw and pulled up in the wrong direction. I'm sure it was uncomfortable, but maybe the dog really wanted to be heard. Like, <laughs> dude, I really want to see this guy. <laughs> I'm making it about me. <laughs> yeah, you know. Oh, you know, Dan, it's all good. It's all um, good. 
So, yeah, I mean, there's so much to all this and and I'm sure we could talk forever on these different things. And the one question I ask everyone is if the world were perfect right now, what would it look like to you? The first thing that comes to my mind, I'll just go with that for now, is like, can I experience it as perfect? And I know that might be a tremendously privileged, might be a tremendously privileged thing to do. And there's something to it. There's something to acceptance. Like I'm feeling the breeze blow. I'm feeling the sunshine. I know there's work to do, but I don't, I don't know perfection. That's a different quality of being. When I tried to start imagining perfection without a hill to climb, without a bridge to build, you know, without something to fix, could all that still exist? But somehow without some aspects of the suffering, the pain, if, can we acknowledge that we may always have work to do and mm. may always have strains or stresses? I'm, I'm sort of caught between acceptance and a desire for, for improvement, for to accept what is and to experience heaven on earth may be partly at least a state of mind, a state of, of attitude. Say, so here it is. It's amazing. It is amazing. On, on so many levels, I can say, living, breathing is a phenomenal miracle. So sort of caught between that and also knowing there's all kinds of suffering going on on all kinds of levels and places right now, even as I'm having this moment of perceived perfection. Mm. I don't, I don't think that was an answer, but those were some <laughs> words. <laughs> they were some words. They sure were. Wow. That was deep, man. I'm, I'm coming back up. Let me. <laughs> Liberace, Liberace. <laughs> yeah, Liberace. Oh, inside joke. You'll have, you'll have to share a, a still photo with your with your fans. Oh, I, can I put it on there? I, I wanted to sure. ask your permission. Uh, absolutely. All right. So just as a little back backstory is the one time when we were lobbying, I don't know, out of whose office? Somebody it in must Texas. have been a congressperson from Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah. Because there was like this cardboard cutout of Liberace outside of the congressperson's office and like doing this Life little size. picky thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we had a contest of who could, who could replicate that, that look. And Dan won. Dan definitely won. <laughs> so I took a picture and. I hold it over them every time. <laughs> I, I think everybody won yeah. <laughs> in that situation. Yeah. Or but maybe Liberace won. <laughs> maybe Liberace won. Yeah. So my friend, how can people help out if they're called to say, I need to, to be involved with the Peace Alliance? What's the easiest way? I, I went on there today and I saw that there's a petition on there and, you know, to help kind of, build the bridges to, to yeah. all the different legislations and what would be a good way for people to, to do all that? Okay. Yeah. There, there are so many different ways and levels to plug in, as you might imagine, there's you know infinite, however uh, folks are called, but www.peacealliance.org gets you to our website. And there is that blueprint for peace. I think you're mentioning it's, it's uh, basically brings uh, elected representatives' attention to what we think of as peace-building policies and, and to ask them to sign on and, and 
commit themselves to looking for opportunities to build peace through policy. There is also an, an active Department of Peacebuilding Committee, and Nancy at PeaceAlliance.org is always happy to talk with folks and help them to connect with their legislator and coach folks on, on how to have those conversations, lobbying conversations. There are lots of things. If you put your name on, on the email list by going to the website, you'll get contacted about other activities. And we've got monthly calls, monthly action calls. We've got a truth, recon, truth healing and reconciliation working group that's working on gathering and curating stories while simultaneously looking at policy opportunities towards truth, healing, and reconciliation in this country. Nice. Nice. Yes. And that's one of the other things I wanted to, to bring up too, because we're all looking for unity, but we need to have truth first before we can kind of move forward through all that. So that truth building and coming together is, is key. Yeah. So that that's very timely. Yeah. And to the extent, I, I know there are, there are sort of edges around, around some of that, that those notions to me and, and language about when we talk about truth and healing or accountability, it's important to me, I guess, to acknowledge that to me, it's always going to be small T truth. We can talk about stuff that was observed, stuff that happened. So I, I, I don't want to start an argument. I probably <laughs> just started an, an argument in the minds of a dozen of your listeners. <laughs> like, oh, people have to acknowledge that this happened. Yeah, I, I, I get that. There are places where it's important for people to hear acknowledgement and understanding. And a big part, I think, of the truth telling process is holding space for a person's honest truth of their story, their experience, their values. And it may be little by little where we can come to the table and create a nurturing enough, open enough space with integrity that people feel safe enough to let their guards down enough to where their truth might resemble more closely what you think you need to hear mm. to move forward and in partnership. You always have a good perspective. The, the the nuance is just phenomenal in your brain. It's I appreciate it so much. <laughs> oh man. So Glad you I, like it. I was a little <laughs> I was a little surprised and more or less pleased with all the, the words that just happened. <laughs> Something's working. <laughs> Stuff's happening. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Uh, so, uh, all right. Well, I know we could continue to talk forever and ever, and maybe we'll have to do this again. You know, next that's time we do, next time we do some uh, lobbying, if we ever get a chance to do that again, we'll have to. You know, then we can talk more. Can yeah. I? Can I toss in one other thing? And, sure. And, and yes, yes to all that. Let's talk more. And I've got some ideas about specific cooperation I want to talk with you about. And also regarding what people can do to cultivate peace, I think was your question in some regard. What occurred to me, if you want to start internally, um, just something that's worked for me when I do feel like anxious and upset, and this may be well known to a lot of folks, some version of square or rectangular breathing sometimes mm -hmm. helps me. So like inhale for some count and then hold it for the same count more or less and then exhale for that same count, and then hold it out for that same count. So inhale, hold, exhale, hold. And I've also heard that if you exhale longer than your inhale, that actually stimulates the vagus nerve, which yeah. is part of our, connected with our autonomic nervous system and helps us to come into more calm and maybe more ease and awareness. So 
yeah, yeah pay attention it, to their breathing. Yeah, absolutely. It, it activates our parasympathetic nervous system. So that vagus nerve and yeah, mm-hmm. all good. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks. So yeah. Cool. You know. All right. Thank you so much, Julie. All right. Hey, you peace and love amplifier. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can reach me directly at peaceandloveamplifiers.com. You can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. And remember to ask yourself, what's Am I feeding the field? Until next time.